Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec, where we discuss all things information, all things security, and all things information security. I'm Ben Maliso. And I'm Matt Snotty. And Matt, this week, you wanted to do a topic very near and dear to, well, I'd say both our hearts, but (laughs) (laughs) something something of integral meaning and uh, something that is very high-tech security. What is this product that we're going to apply all of our latest and greatest technology to protecting? (laughs) Well, Ben, you know a little bit about my home state, which is Kentucky in the United States. And Kentucky has several things that it's known for. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, Kentucky Derby, uh, Kentucky Basketball, uh, Bluegrass. But there's one other really big thing that Kentucky is known for, which you may have on your shelf and some of our listeners may have on their shelves right now. Oh, oh, have on our shelf. I I thought you were going to say inbreeding, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you're talking about a different sort of asset. Oh, that's a low blow. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, something consumable, (laughs) not something (laughs) related Ah, to incest. I I would imagine then we're going to talk about the thing that's very well displayed. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, obviously you can't see behind Matthew, but he's sitting in front of a selection of some of the the world's finest drinking products. Uh, uh, there's a lot of bourbon there, and uh, I see a whole bunch of other good stuff. Yes. Yep. Yep. So Kentucky's known for 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 uh, bourbon. Uh, now bourbon's, bourbon's been around of... a little longer than computers, Matt. Yes, it has (laughs) considerably longer since the uh, since the late 1700s. In fact, yeah, it's got quite a history and in particular in Kentucky. And so now we're going to apply both InfoSec concepts and IT controls to bourbon. Yes, Uh, I don't know if you've noticed. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed, but um, bourbon as an alcoholic beverage, uh, as a spirit, a distilled spirit has taken on. Uh, quite a, a, a surge uh, as of late. In the last five, 10 years or so, bourbon's become a really hot product, uh, which is great for Kentuckians. It's great for the, the distillery industry that's here in, in uh, our state. Um, it's, uh, you know, you got your vodkas, you got your tequilas, you got your rums, uh, you got your normal whiskeys. Then there's a subset that's American whiskey. And then there's a subset of American whiskey that's bourbon in particular. Uh, Explain that. I'm sorry. Let's let's just drill that just so we have frame of reference for everyone who's <laughs> listening. What is bourbon? I mean, obviously, it's a drinkable liquor, uh, but yep. uh, what is it that distinguishes it from scotch, from whiskey, from whatever? Bourbon is uh, that bourbon is unique in that there is actually a federal law that is passed uh, that, re- that 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 sets the requirements for how you define what bourbon is. <laughs> so this is and, sort of like the U.S. version of champagne. Exactly right. Okay. If it's not from the Champagne region of France, then it's just sparkling wine. If it's not from America, then it's not bourbon. Ah, okay. All right. So a little patriotic pride. All right. So yeah, <laughs> and uh, and it doesn't have to be from Kentucky. There are bourbon distilleries all over the 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 country, uh, but it, uh, by and large, ninety some percent. I, I think it's close to ninety five to ninety nine percent of all bourbon whiskey comes from the state of Kentucky. So we we create a lot of it. And in fact, there's a statistic that there's um, more barrels of bourbon in Kentucky than there are people. And, and in fact, right now, as we sit in twenty twenty two, there's almost two barrels of bourbon 
for every person in Kentucky currently because well, we create a lot. I, you of know, I got to say, as, as a non-Kentuckian, I prefer bourbon to most Kentuckians. So <laughs> yeah. sounds like a good ratio. Well, all right, so, all. <laughs> so, so what makes, no, some Kentuckians give you bourbon. That makes them a good Kentuckian. <laughs> so, so what makes bourbon whiskey differentiated from whiskey whiskey or scotch whiskey and and again you said it's not geography it's not that it yeah. has to come from a, the bourbon region no no it, it's um because uh the the recipe has been outlined in federal law it has to be a, a minimum of 51 percent uh corn in the mash that goes into creating it um has to to be called straight bourbon which is a common on the labels has to be aged in a new charred oak barrel for a minimum of two years um, and many of them are, are aged for much longer than that. Um, and it cannot have any kind of flavor additives or anything like that done to it. Okay. So anytime you see a flavored whiskey or something like that, that's not bourbon. It cannot um, and, be a bourbon by federal law. Right, right. And if it's been aged in anything other than uh, a new charred oak barrel, if it's a reused barrel, it's not bourbon anymore. Um, there's, a, Interesting. There's, a, there's a product called no, Tennessee no. Whiskey. That's very similar to bourbon. It's a cousin of bourbon, but they filter it through charcoal, which adds flavor to it. So therefore, Tennessee whiskey is a separate entity from bourbon. That's fascinating. And and this shows my complete ignorance. But the way I understand it, there are particular whiskeys that used used barrels on purpose because that adds another flavor, another layer yes. of nuance to the drink. I yep. think there's actually some Scotch distillers that use American oak used barrels. Yeah, um, exactly. Specifically for that purpose. Yeah, Scotch whiskey, uh, very similarly made, but uh, yeah, they they often age it. In fact, one of the big industries here in Kentucky is sending used bourbon barrels to uh, Scotland, Ireland, you know, the uh, uh, United Kingdom, because yeah, they they reuse those barrels because the barrels are, are perfectly good. But you can't make bourbon in them once they're, they're used once. Well, other products can be made with it. So, yeah, scotch is often made. And I think that I even sent you a bottle of uh, some scotch that was made uh, that was finished in a bourbon barrel. So it has a little bit of that bourbon flavor in that scotch. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And it sounds like a great subsidy to the oak logging industry. And, uh, <laughs> right. And the Coopers. Yes, yes, the Cooperage, uh, where they make the barrels. Um, and, in fact, there's... Gosh, I, I want to say there, there's only like two main cooperages in Kentucky where almost every barrel gets gets made. But anyways, yeah, we're getting at, down into the weeds with all this kind of stuff. All right, I'm sorry. I, I'm just fascinated. Okay. All right, so you yeah. got this stuff, this brown yeah. liquid that you drink, and it's good. Yeah. And now we're going to protect <laughs> And now we're going to protect it. How can you get high tech? It's a bottle. It's a liquid. What what, what else we got? Yeah. What else so... can you do that? For decades, for centuries, bourbon has been made, you know, uh, after you, you're done aging it, you dump it, you pour it in the bottles, you seal, you put a seal on the bottle, um, usually like a foil seal or something like that. And that's the extent of, of security on it because it doesn't need to be secured because it's a consumable good. It's designed to be drank, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, you know, but um, bourbon has taken on such a well, I mean, it's it's become an investment property almost because there are very, very high-end bourbons that didn't used to be um, and now are. Um, and even every everyday bourbons are becoming more sought after, more desirable as people have gotten more into bourbon and it's become kind of a hot item. So one distillery in particular, which is the Buffalo Trace Distillery that's in Frankfort, Kentucky, it's just about uh, 20 minutes from my house, has started a um, 
a program to secure bottles of bourbon. Individual uh, bottles, not cases, in, not the in, casks. Correct, individual bottles. Because the, the third-party market where these resellers are going out and selling their bourbons, yeah, they're selling the, the bottles. They're not selling cases of it or anything like that. Now, the cases uh, have, have their own security as well. But Buffalo Trace, if you've ever heard anything about bourbon, the one, the, the high-end bourbon that most people have heard about is called Pappy Van Winkle or Rip Van Winkle, but something Van Winkle. Van Winkle family owns a label. Uh, Buffalo Trace um, produces the, the bourbon that goes into their bottles. Um, Pappy Van Winkle is well known for being a multi-thousand dollar per bottle bourbon. So you can buy a bottle of multi-thousands it. Multi-thousands yeah. per bottle. For a, a single not an bottle. aged bottle, not a bottle from 100 years ago. Nope. Just a, a yeah, a bottle that comes off the line from Buffalo Trace that has a Pappy Van Winkle bottle, uh, label on it. Label on it. Will now, now okay retail for the, the, a couple of hundred, but then it'll immediately be resold for thousands of dollars. Okay, so <laughs> first of all, it can't possibly taste that good. Second of all, <laughs> I've had it. It's pretty good. <laughs> I, well. Okay, but for thousands of dollars, I could buy, you know, uh, 20, 20 bottles that taste just like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Buffalo Trace itself has taken on in recent years, at least, again, as, as very much an amateur in this, um, they've taken on more notoriety. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and they've become something of a, a, a famous name among drinking enthusiasts. Yes. Um, Okay, so so they bottle both the Van Winkle label and their own label, Buffalo Trace. Uh, yeah, among others, yeah. So okay. like uh, Blanton's, um, yeah, they they, they do uh, Eagle Rare, um, a bunch of different types of not and not just bourbons, but yeah, uh, many of the more well-known bourbons. But they also have their own vodka line and and stuff like that. They have a, a parent company named Sazerac, um, and they create a lot of a lot of distilled goods. Yes. Interesting. All right. So we just had some Eagle Rare last night uh, from a bottle <laughs> that we got from you. Um, and uh, I happen to love it. Uh, yeah, and and Sazerac, Sazerac Rye, the, the mm -hmm. famous. Okay. All right. That's yeah, very yeah. big. That's very big here in Louisiana because it's Sazerac's kind of the drink of NOLA. Yep. All right. All right. So again, how are we going IT with this per bottle thing? <laughs> Are they putting so, uh, uh, GPS locators on them? <laughs> that would be an, uh, that would be a solution. Yes. <laughs> um, so Buffalo Trace has realized that with the demand for their products, especially the high end stuff, that and and with the third party market where people are buying these bottles at retail when they can find them because they're extremely rare, they're very hard to find. They're being resold third party, uh, you know, consumer to consumer. Um, that there's a lot of counterfeiting going on. So in yeah, other words, wouldn't you? There's, a, there's a really good incentive for that. Right. Because uh, an, an empty bottle still has the same label, still has the same, you know, cap screw on cap or cork cap or something like that. And yeah, you can refill it with any brown liquid. Uh, and if you can just refoil the top or reseal the top in some way, which isn't terribly hard to do, you can then sell that bottle to some unsuspecting person for whatever the third party value of that bottle of bourbon is. So if you had a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, you could resell it for a very, very huge profit margin. See, and I know Dick about bourbon, but I am a film aficionado and I am reminded of the sequence from the film, Mr. Roberts with uh, Henry Ford and Jack Lemon and, oh, I forget the, the name of the other wonderful actor. Um, uh, the guy from the thin man, uh, um, and they make 
they have an empty bottle of whiskey mm-hmm. and they have to invent whiskey using just what's available from ship stores on a Navy boat out in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. Well, <laughs> bathtub hooch. <laughs> exa- yes. But, but from what's already available, they don't have time to distill anything. So they uh-huh. start with, they start with medical alcohol and go from there. Oh. You know? <laughs> They put in a little bit of cough medicine and they put yeah, it's oh, yeah. all man. right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I've never, I've never seen that. <laughs> it's, was it, it's was it film, supposed to be drinkable? It's a very good film. It hasn't aged well in all of its aspects, but uh, uh, I think older people would appreciate it. <laughs> okay. No, I've never seen that. Um, but yeah, so uh, counterfeiting has become kind of a problem. And so Buffalo Trace, um, hired security consultants and said, we need to figure out a way to make it so that people know that if they're buying something, that it's authentic, that it's actually our product. And so this kind of goes back to some of the concepts of security, uh, things you know be, beyond just trademarks and intellectual property, but actually physical security on a bottle so that you know that A, it was factory sealed, and B, if it's been opened in the past, um, and they came up with a way to I don't know all the details, and I only found one article about this, and so I'm I'm, I'm speaking a little bit uh, ignorantly about this, but apparently they've created a way on the high end bottles to embed either a um, uh, a Q, not just a QR code. Uh, what's the thing I'm thinking about? The uh, the RFID. RFID. Yes, thank you. Uh, an RFID ID, uh, chip in their bottle caps that can detect. Um, well, A, A it can tell you whether the bottle is authentic or not because it'll, it'll have that in there. But B, it actually is triggered or activated when that bottle is actually open. So once the, the seal is broken on it, that thing, when you scan it with your smartphone, it'll tell you this bottle has been previously opened, which is a really interesting technology. Again, I don't know the details of it, and I've been trying to find more, more stuff about it. They're being super duper quiet about it right now. I haven't seen any of these bottles in person, so I can't attest to any of them. Uh, and they may not be out in production in the world yet, but they're, they're, they're coming. I think I think the Century of Sounds of Infosec needs to get a hold of a couple of these bottles for research purposes. <laughs> That's true. And, I, I've and got because it'll be part things. of our our broadcast, it will be tax deductible then for us. <laughs> right. Nothing like cracking open a bottle of bourbon as a tax deduction. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But, um, but yeah, so I'm trying to find out some more. And again, like I said, they're only 20 minutes away from my house and I need to, to, to get some more information as I have friends who are employees there. Um, and, and so far, everyone's been tight, tight-lipped on it. But apparently, I thought it was a fascinating... Matt, Matt, those aren't your friends. You're just an alcoholic. It's like, <laughs> you know, the waitresses at Hooters don't think that you're very cool either. They pretend to do that. I pre- <laughs> okay, fine. You got me. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I hate to break it to you. Call it what you will. Fine. I call them friends. (laughs) You call them enablers. (laughs) You think they're your friends. They say, oh, here's that guy again. Right. Yeah. All right. Oh, no, I would be fascinated. I mean, and to me, this sounds like a very similar um, issue to uh, Robin and I had uh, an episode about the Johnson and Johnson case. Um, Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, uh, from, Tylenol? The, yeah, the Tylenol yeah. case from, from decades ago about how they instituted, same thing, physical packaging 
integrity solutions, controls. And that's why now we have the foil seals on individual pills and that sort of thing. And it seems to me very much a a similar kind of thing, but Buffalo Trace decided to go more high tech with it, right? Right, right. They wanted, and as I understand it, there's actually a smartphone app that will scan uh, any given bottle that has this, uh, this chip inside of it, and it'll tell you the entire history of the bottle. So basically you can be guaranteed to know um, yeah, this bottle hasn't been tampered with. Um, yeah, it, it, very much like the Tylenol, you, you don't want molested bourbon. You don't want thing, something uh, that's been opened and then resold. Even if it's the same product inside, you want a, uh, you know, a factory sealed bottle. So, um, yeah, I thought that it was pretty interesting. That's, that's very cool. And, and I was just going to ask you how, because these are consumer to consumer sales, that's, they're looking about, you know, the, the end user and do most end users have RFID readers? And as far as I know, we don't. And I don't know if you can get an app for that, uh, for that particular technology. And I'll give you my example. You know, I'll get, the only example I, I'm extremely familiar with is the RFID chip in our pets. Mm, and yeah. and the way you know how RFID works, uh, correct me if I, if I get any of this wrong, um, it's basically just a small antenna with a little bit of memory in it, and it, it, it's completely passive. But yeah. when you pulse it with a certain radio frequency, it echoes back to the sensor that you're pulsing it with and says, this is what I am and this is the data I have. And that, yes. can, be, and that can be used as a lookup code in any sort of database. And in, for instance, my, the chips that are embedded under the skin of my pets when the the veterinarian or the animal control uh, uh, personnel take a wand and and wave it over the pet, that database then says this pet belongs to Ben. This is his phone number. This is his email address. Get him in. Get in touch with him, and he'll come get the pet and give you fifty bucks. Right. Um, and those wands are not common. It's not like everybody has one in their house. So every time they find a stray pet, they can just use it. Um, and I think it needs to be both a radio frequency broadcast device, uh, and, and we're talking low range. I mean, it's not a transmitter mm-hmm. of any sort, but in, and then it also has to have the sensor to read the data that's reflected back from the chip. Can phones do that? I, I don't honestly know. I, um, as far as I know, no, uh, and I may be incorrect in categorizing the technology as RFID because it's probably something that's not exactly that, but it's similar because yeah, yeah I, I do know that they were looking, that, that they did create a smartphone app for verification of the authenticity of the bottle. In, in addition, like I said, it has some sort of a sensor in it that, that permanently affects the chip, RFID, whatever it happens to be, um, that will then tell you if that, if that seal has been broken in the past. Interesting. And, and I admit the phone is a transmitter, obviously, because yeah. it, it works two ways. So right. maybe it's not necessarily what we think of as the proprietary technology RFID, but the same principle right. where you're going to ping that hardware in the bottle. The bottle's going to tell you, um, yes, I exist. Also, this portion of my mesh was severed when the bottle was open. Right. I mean, that, that's probably what it's doing, right? Yeah. 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 I, I think so. And um, yeah, like I said, uh, 
I haven't seen a, a, a bottle yet with it on there, but yeah, I would definitely love to investigate it and see what its actual capabilities are because it's, it has a lot of implications beyond just bourbon, but um, it's, it's interesting that it is being used in this, uh, th this particular case. Yeah, hey, I'm okay. So this is gonna be your assignment that I'm giving you as head <laughs> of Century Sounds of Security. Uh, I'm I'm gonna task you with getting two bottles. Uh, you gotta send one here, and uh, we'll we'll check Wait, that out. Are are, are you, you tasking me personally? Or are you tasking the listener in general? <laughs> oh, I'm tasking I'm tasking my three listeners to go and crowdsource. Matthew and I, a couple of bottles of, uh, well, what it doesn't have to be Van Winkle, but uh, it has to be something with one of these devices in it. If so it, it happens to be Van Winkle. To be <laughs> See, now, and, and it's interesting that you say, okay, they're keeping it secret. Um, you and I both know a control that works well cannot work solely on the principle of obscurity, right? You, right. If the only reason that your security control works is because nobody knows how's it, how it works, that's not a control that's going to last very long. Once it right. gets out into the wild, someone's going to crack it and it's busted and it's gone. So eventually they are going to have to, this is going to have to become ubiquitous. Yeah. They can still maintain the intellectual property control over how they want to license the technology. But to me, I can already foresee, we just talked about the Tylenol case. I could foresee a lot of other industrial and commercial applications way beyond, you know, expensive bottles of bourbon to where if everyone's already downloading the app to their phone where they're making their phone the sensor, um, you could go through a grocery store and find mm -hmm. out, you know, whether this carton of eggs has been opened 12 times before or, you know, you, you there's so many things that you could do with that that's uh, fascinating. Right, right. And, and I do think that... Um... It, because it's so new, uh, I think that's probably a big reason why they're being pretty hush-hush about it all. And that, yeah, eventually it will become uh, much more ubiquitous. But I also, I'm under the impression from, from again, the one article and, and a little bit of research that I did, that the technology is not cheap enough right now that it can be applied to your everyday bottles of bourbon. And an everyday bottle of bourbon might be a 15 to $50 bottle of bourbon. This is more for the higher end where you're looking at 75 dollars um, upwards to over a hundred to like I said the, the Van Winkle line is in the hundreds of dollars per bottle and then being resold for thousands so yeah it's uh, the scale isn't there yet to make it, it cheap enough to be um, effective on lower end stuff but yeah if, if, again if it scales up really well then then yeah a five five dollar uh, box of Tylenol could very easily have you know they, they could eat a couple of couple of pennies to put those sensors in those as well Absolutely. And that and that's the way that it exists with with all technologies. Right. It, yeah. It's always the early adopters that are financing the bulk of both the research and development and um, uh, the first wave of implementation to the point where eventually, as that has been funded and replicated and refined, it scales out to where it becomes affordable for everyone. You know, yeah. I, I remember when. Uh, my father first got a car phone for work <laughs> uh -huh. uh, because he was, he's a traveling salesman and, and that thing was hard mounted into the car itself, uh -huh. you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and it was super expensive and it was something the company had to pay for. And, and, and now we all have phone, you know, I, I, I can go to the phone store and get 
well, I don't even know if they sell $30 phones anymore, but you know, you, you can get one for less than a hundred dollars and, and then uh-huh. they scale all the way up from there. And, um, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating, uh, how the markets work and, and how those things become eventually available to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought about this was we live in a time right now where technology is changing very rapidly as well. And I was curious as to how this, this technology would age because bourbons again, are things, um, yeah, certainly the contents of the bottle are aged a, a period of time in barrels, but once it's bottled, um, they can often sit on shelves for years and years and years. So if you were to find a, say, fast forward 10, 15 years from 2022, so it's 2032, 2037, something like that, I wonder how the technology, if the technology would still be there, if it had changed anymore, if it, uh, if you could still read uh, the, the data on these chips in the bottles. <laughs> after I, I love that question. Thank you. That, see, and that is, that is a perfect uh, example. I, um, yesterday, I tried to get our drone to fly. Uh, <laughs> Robin's mother gave us a drone three years ago. It's not so not very long ago. Uh-huh. During that time, the manufacturer stopped making that model of the drone mm-hmm. and took the app for flying that drone out of the app store. Really? Because that. That app does not work with current generation phones. And uh-huh. Robin and I have since updated our phones since three years ago. Uh-huh. And I had to find a way to sideload an old copy of the old app into my current phone. And, I mean, uh-huh. it, and this was three years for a yeah, piece yeah, of technology. Oh, for a piece of technology that's substantial, fairly high tech, it still works great, but we couldn't make it work with our current level of phone. I mean, that, that, well, I finally did, but that's your, yes. Will the app still work 20 years from now when somebody really wants to drink that bottle and somebody isn't going to sell it to them for less than a thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah. Once you embed something like that, that, that technology is locked in and how do you future proof something like that? Um, I mean, uh, uh, and I assume with your drone scenario, you had no other way to control that drone other than through your your phone. You didn't have like right. a, a handheld controller with two joysticks on it. You you either got it to work on your phone or or it was, it was a dead piece of technology. That is correct. Yeah, the 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 uh, controller actually plugs into the phone. The phone is what gives you the video interface and the, mm. and the it actually powers the handset. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty sad. Isn't, isn't that it, wild? Somebody was not thinking pretty far ahead over at the drone company, were they? Or yeah. <laughs> well, they just didn't care. They were like, we already made the sale. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we don't three, need to stick around. Three you know, years. Three, yeah, that's 2019. Oh, my goodness. That was uh, that, that's just slightly pre-pandemic. I, I mean, I, I get that after the pandemic, everybody feels like it's been 10 years, but <laughs> that's not that long in real time. No, no, it is not. I mean, three years, programmed obsolescence should be maybe a decade, maybe, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, three years is not, not for a substantial, and I have no idea what her mother paid for it, but, you know, that's. <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a bottle of Ann Winkle. I'll tell you that. But, <laughs> but on the but other so, hand, a substantial investment should get you more than thirty-six months of use. You know. Right. Right. Huh. Wow. And and I'm sure that you and I could both probably, if we thought about it a little bit. I mean, there's been lots of other things that that have gone obsolete 
I mean, I, you know, software that's been tied to I, Windows XP was a huge one in particular because when we went from Windows XP to Windows 7, and as, as you're now realizing going from 7 to Windows 10, XP was around as a de facto operating system for six years, almost yeah, seven officially supported by Microsoft. So a whole lot of software was written for Windows XP that didn't translate to later versions of Windows. And so, yeah, that obsolescence is, it's, you've really got to work hard to, and, and kind of hold these, these software developers to the, to the fire to keep them, keep them relevant. And I guess that's an impossible thing. How many AS400s are still in somebody's basement somewhere running COBOL? <laughs> right. And COBOL developers are getting, you know, per hour fees that are astronomical just to keep them limping along because yeah. everyone's terrified of what happens if that AS400 goes under. They don't even know what impact it would have on their business. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that, that, that's a really good point as well. Uh, yeah. COBOL, Fortran. All these things that were dead languages, is, or or have been tried to be killed off, killed off for years, yep, never actually gone away because if it works, it, the, the the cost of changing is way too high, so keep it's cheaper to keep it running no matter keep what. Keep limping along, yep, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I, this is a very interesting arena to explore. I, I'm um, eager to do more research along yeah. those lines. <laughs> now, the research uh, involves the cap, not the contents of the bottle. <laughs> once it's open, you can't do anything with it anyway. According yeah. to federal law, as a matter yeah. of fact, it, had, uh -huh. it must be drunk. Um, excellent, excellent, excellent. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank um, you. Uh, always fascinating and a very good take on IT security. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well. We'll see where it goes. Until next time, I'm Ben Maliso. And I'm Matt Snotty. Join us next week for another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec.